I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 26 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. Uh, we're going to um, read it in just a, a moment from Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 31. Uh, while you're turning there, I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a man who had a beloved cat, and he went on vacation. And while he was gone on this vacation, he entrusted his beloved cat into the care of his brother. After two weeks, he returned home from the vacation of his lifetime and asked his uh, uh, brother, when can I come by and pick up the cat? And his brother said, well, your cat's dead, so there's no point in you coming over. The man was shocked, like, what? The cat's dead? What do you mean the cat's dead? That's a terrible way to tell somebody news like that. You shouldn't just blurt things out like that. You should, you should ease into it. His brother said, well, what do you mean? What, what would you prefer? Well, you could have, you could have called me one day and said, said uh, the cat's up on the roof and we can't get the cat down. Then a couple days later, you could have called and told me that the cat's down, but it's so injured that the vet has taken care of it and it's, it doesn't look good. And then finally, you could have called me a couple days later to tell me what had happened. You don't have to just break this news like this is terrible. His brother thought about it and said, I, I, I guess I'm sorry. And the man said, well, how, how are things going out? Are things well otherwise? I mean, how's mom doing? His brother said, she's stuck up on the roof and we can't get her down. <laughs> that is a rather lighthearted uh, way to begin considering an excruciating text in the Gospels. It's an excruciating text and it is a very familiar text. Today we're going to talk about Peter's denial of the Lord Jesus, his blasphemous, cowardly, profane treason. The Bible doesn't ease us into this story. It doesn't soften the blow. There's nothing in the text that's meant to make these hard truths easier to accept or recognize. This is hard truth about one of the men that the, that the book of Ephesians calls a foundation stone of our faith. <laughs> Think about us. Here we are, followers of Jesus, and the two most prominent men at the beginning of the church are Peter, who denied the Lord, and Paul, who was a murderer, and by his own testimony, the worst sinner in the world. We're going to read this account. I want you to ask two questions as we do. Two questions. The first one is, why, or how do we know, sorry, how do we know these details? There's no other apostolic witness to them. How do we know what happened that night in that courtyard? And the obvious answer, the answer must be that Peter himself told this story. Which leads to the second question you should ask. Why, why would Peter tell this story? Why would he want everybody to know about his own failures, his own grievous treason like this? Why would he do that? Well, I think that Peter wants us to know not just hard truths about himself, but he wants us to know hard truths about us too. Hard truths about us as human beings and wonderful truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. John MacArthur says that hard truth makes soft hearts. And there's some truth to that. Let's read Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. Then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have arisen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. 
Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. What follows immediately, we're going to come to this uh, next week, Lord willing, is uh, Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane and then his arrest. But I want you to look at verse 56, the last sentence of Matthew 26, 56. We pick up Jesus as he's being arrested. It says, all the disciples deserted him and fled. We'll keep going. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. Now we skip ahead to verse 69. Here's what Peter is doing. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard during Jesus' trial, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. In order to be healthy, in, in order to be whole, in order to be found, it helps to know how sick, how lost you really are. And some of, those, some of that knowledge of yourself is hard. Here, we're going to think about three hard truths about Peter and us. First, we're going to think about Peter's and our independence. Peter's and our independence. Back in verse 31, we're still in the Mount of Olives. Jesus hasn't been arrested yet. We pick up this conversation. And what stands out in this conversation is Peter's astounding, ridiculous overconfidence. You probably noticed the steps in the conversation. Jesus speaks, and Peter contradicts him. And then Jesus speaks again, and Peter doubles down in telling Jesus that he was wrong. This is not the first time in Matthew that Peter does something like this. Remember, look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. Matthew 16, 21 says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. Uh-uh. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Huh. Here's the Peter that we know and love, often wrong, never in doubt. Jesus said, this very night, you will all fall away 
on account of me. Now, that word fall away is important in the the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew is telling us as he writes his book that Jesus does things that people don't expect. He is the Messiah they weren't looking forward to. He's a puzzle, a mystery to them. And this falling away actually shows up several times. In the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 11, John the Baptist is having doubts about Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 11, verse 6, Jesus says of, of John's questions, blessed is anyone who does not stumble, there it is, fall away on account of me. In Matthew chapter 13, the people in the city of Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, listen to Jesus teach, see him do miracles, and they think, who is this guy? We know him. We, we grew up with him. We know his mother. We know his brothers. We know his sisters. What, what is going on with this guy? And Matthew 13, 57 says, and they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor and except in his own town and in his own home. Then in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says something about food, foods that you can eat and the food regulations. And the Pharisees get upset about this. And in Matthew 15, uh, verse 12, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? And Jesus said, that was the goal. Actually, that's not what he said, but, uh, but uh, Pharisees, eh. now it's the disciples. Now it's the disciples. If you're reading the Gospels and you read about Jesus and it's never you who are scratching your head or wondering what Jesus is doing and why he's saying what he's saying, then I'm wondering if maybe you're not reading the Gospels the way Matthew intended Matthew to be read. You're going to fall away. It's scandalous behavior. But it's behavior that's not out of God's plans because Jesus says it is written. Here's fulfillment of scripture from the book of Zechariah, chapter 13, 7. Notice my translation as Jesus quotes it says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now, I want to compare this for a minute to Zechariah 13 because in Zechariah 13, it doesn't say I. Look what Zechariah 13 says. God is speaking and in Zechariah 13, 7, he says, awake, sword, against my shepherd against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. It's interesting. In Zechariah, God is speaking to someone. In, in Matthew, Jesus quotes this as if God is saying this. Now, why does he do this? Well, in part, I think he's picking up in Isaiah from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely Jesus, he, the Messiah, took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. Here's the progress of Revelation in the Old Testament. We know that God's going to send a deliverer and he's going to suffer. And as the Bible continues to unfold, we recognize that it's God's hand that will strike him with the greatest ferocity, his own father. Jesus will be stricken the sheep will be scattered. And Jesus says, Peter says, not me. It's astounding self-confidence, astounding independence. Peter, Peter, you're not a sheep. You're not a, you're not a shepherd, Peter. You think you're as strong as a shepherd, but you're a sheep, Peter. You're a sheep. You're a defenseless, uh, not too bright, not very fast sheep. You're not a shepherd. 
You won't be able to keep it together like you think. Now notice, in order for Peter to be right here, or what he does in his protest against his first uh, word from Jesus, he demeans all the other disciples. They may fall away, but not me. I don't know about the rest of these schmucks, but I'm okay, right? He demeans them. He contradicts Jesus, and he says that the Old Testament scriptures are wrong too when they prophesy that the sheep are going to be scattered. It's a living example of what John says in 1 John 1 and our own attitude toward our own failings, our own sin. Look at 1 John 1, 8. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And verse 10 says, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Peter says, Jesus, you're wrong. I'm not going to fail. You're wrong. You're the liar. I'm the one telling the truth. Oh, Peter, you're not that strong. You're not that strong. You're not independent like you think you are. Martin Luther, we sing the words from him. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord, Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. And he, he must win the battle. Rely on yourself, you're on the losing side. Now, this passage does teach us about Peter's um, amazing overconfidence. It does say, tell us things about the Lord Jesus, too. Notice in this passage, he calls himself the shepherd, and the disciples are the sheep. He's the all-sufficient one. He's the one around whom their lives depend upon whom their lives depend. He's at the center of their life. They're just the sheep and when he's gone, they're lost. If Jesus isn't at the center of our congregation, we're lost. If he's not who he said he is, if he didn't do what he said he did, we're lost. It might, reminds me of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection. If the resurrection isn't true, we're lost. Look what he says. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Peter thinks he's independent. He thinks he's very strong. He thinks he's going to stand up, but he's very wrong. And notice Jesus is the center as the shepherd. And even here in this moment, he is caring for his flock in anticipation of what will be a very dark night of doubt for them. He makes his promise. He says, after I have been raised, I will be ahead of you. I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And some people think that Jesus is continuing the shepherd metaphor. I'll go ahead. Shepherds go ahead of the sheep. That's, some people think that. Uh, Don Carson says he thinks that we should think about the disciples and what plans they may have after the crucifixion. Think about it. They're in great grief Friday night after Jesus is buried. Jesus is dead. And on Saturday, he's dead. What are they going to do? What are they going to do next? Where are they going to go next? Somebody says, I guess we're going home. I guess we're going back to Galilee. I guess we're going back to fishing. And Jesus says, oh, before you even get there, I'll be there. I'll be there before you even get there because I'm going to be raised. 
He's caring for them, even in this, in this moment. This passage reminds us that Jesus' words are more reliable than people are. Always. Some of you have followed Jesus long enough, and some of you will, unless he comes back, follow him long enough that someone that you know and love who is a follower of Jesus will fail you. They'll turn aside from what they once professed, and it will, it will shake, it, it may shake you. But remember that Jesus' words are faithful. Human beings, we fail. Remember what Isaiah said, Isaiah the prophet, in, in Isaiah 40, he said, all people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Jesus' words endure forever. A human being, our faithfulness wavers. Even if all fall away on account of you, I'll never will. And then it gets worse for Peter because Jesus speaks again. He says, Peter, it's, it's, not, it, it's not just that you're going to run away like the rest of the disciples. You're going to actively deny that you know me. You're going to deny me Three times, you're going to disown me. We're not independent like we think we are. We're not as strong as we think we are. And what's worse, what's worse is that we are in this natural state of rebellion against God. It's worse than we think. Um, Peter's not just going to flee. He's going to actively deny Jesus. We're not as strong as we think we are. That's true. We're not as good as we like to imagine that we are. We're not as loyal as we aspire to be. What we see here in Peter's disowning, denying Jesus, we see here, uh, before Jesus goes to the cross, we see the disloyalty and the sin that makes his death necessary. Uh, this Wednesday, I was awake in the middle of the night at 3 o'clock in the morning. I was awake, at not by choice. I was laying in bed, and I was thinking about my recent physical. A couple weeks ago, I had my annual physical. And uh, I was thinking about the shape I'm in, mostly round. And I was thinking about um, what I should do about that, what I can do about that. And I, I thought about my uh, schedule, my life, and what's coming up, and goals. I need, to just, I need to set some goals for myself. You know, Resurrection Sunday's coming. That's a pretty big deal. And then, then there's summer. I should, I should set some goals for myself. That was at 3 a.m. I was resolute. At 3 p.m. on Wednesday, I was in my office finishing off the bag of chocolate peanut butter trail mix that I had, all seven servings. How is it that I could be so disciplined, so very disciplined at 3 a.m. and so very undisciplined at 3 p.m.? Why am I so much more holy in the morning than I am in the late afternoon? Anybody have that problem? It's not just a diet. It's not just diet that is the issue, right? It's not just that. Uh, there are a lot of dark spaces in your life. The hard truth. There's the inconsistency of the stewardship of your sexuality. There's your faithfulness with your financial resources. It's a lot easier to make a budget than to live by a budget. 
There's the fulfillment of your marriage vows and your loyalty to your spouse, your integrity at work, your consistency in parenting. It's a lot easier to be a parent in your imagination than in reality. Think about all the rationalizing and excuse-making that you engage in. Peter, you're not as strong as you think you are, and in fact, you're worse off than you think you are. Jeremiah 17 is right. When the prophet Jeremiah, I think about this verse a lot, he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure, desperately wicked, desperately sick, so bad you can't fix it yourself. You don't even understand how bad your heart is. Think about the implications for us as a church as, as we, we come face-to-face with these hard truths. We confess these hard truths as a congregation. It's part of our doctrinal statement. You might not have read it recently, but here's, here's what we believe about human beings. The good news comes first. We believe that all human beings have been made in the image of God. As beings created by God, humans exist to glorify Him and were intended to enjoy, enjoy a relationship with Him forever. Humanity was given responsibility over creation. Now here's the bad news. Sin entered the world through Adam's disobedience to the word of God. All people are sinners by nature and choice, having inherited guilt from their parents. Every member of the human race is born estranged from God and in need of a savior. So we cry out to God for our babies that he would in due time open their eyes that they might see the glory of Jesus and believe. We're not shocked when we see evidence of this in people's lives. In our lives, we're not shocked about this. This is what we believe about human beings. We're all estranged from God, born estranged from God, and in need of a Savior. Ray Ortland was introduced, uh, uh, interviewed recently about his book called The Death of Porn. It's a fine little book. And uh, he, he, he described something that he did with his men's ministry. They had a men's Bible study that was meeting and about the ninth or tenth uh, week uh, the, of their early morning meetings, he got the guys together and he said, all right, here's what we're going to do this morning. I want you to divide into groups of two, and you're going to go find a place in the church, and I want you to tell your partner the worst thing you've ever done. Ray Ortland said, I'm not sure if I would ever do that again. But, but we believe that we have done terrible things. What we, what we believe... What Peter does here is not a, not a shock to us. Rebecca Piper was in Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts uh, several years ago. She had two very unique experiences. One day she went to a graduate level psychology class at Harvard University and she was a guest. She said the students couldn't have been more welcoming. And we were talking about, they were talking about their uh, problems. And she said it was astounding how open and candid they were. They would stand up and they would talk about the fact that their, their anger, I'm an angry person or I'm afraid or I'm so jealous w- without fear or reservation. And they didn't deny or hide it at all. She said, what else? Uh, something else that I noticed though is that even though they were very open about their problems, they didn't know what to do about them. Um, they didn't know where the resources, they didn't have the resources to overcome them. So someone said, I know I need to forgive, but I, don't, I, I just can't, I don't have it within me to be kind and generous instead of petty and vindictive. It's so much easier to be petty and vindictive. That was the graduate class in psychology at Harvard University. The next day, she went to a Bible study 
also made up of, not the same students, but also made up of several students from Harvard and others uh, who were in the area. She said, the contrast was striking because during the Bible study, no one spoke openly about their problems. A lot of talk about God's answers and a lot of talk about God's promises, very little about the participants and their own problems that they faced. The closest they got was they mentioned someone who was struggling and needed prayer. Struggling is a Christian word that covers a multitude of sins. Listen to what she said. The first group, the psychology class, seemed to have all the problems and no answers. The second group, the Bible study, had all the answers and no problems. In our church, brothers and sisters, we have problems. You are surrounded by people who have messed up And what we have in common is that we have come together to find help from Jesus. Peter's independence. Now, let's think secondly here about Peter's and our failure. And we're going to turn over to uh, verse 69 and think about his actual, the account. Why is the account of Peter's failure separate from the prediction. Well, it's, it's, intent, it's intentional on Matthew's part. He wants you to compare what Peter does in response to accusations to what Jesus does in response to accusations. In fact, um, look at the last line of Jesus' trial, which again, we'll come to later. Uh, verse 68, they're mocking Jesus in his trial in, in uh, Caiaphas' house. And they said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Verse 68 as if Jesus can't prophesy. He can't possibly do it. And then verse 69 begins the account of one of his prophecies coming true. Uh, A a servant girl comes to Peter and and makes a, a rather weak accusation. Now, I read it. We believe that all human beings are made in the image of God and worthy of dignity and value and respect. But in this culture in particular, Peter and this servant girl are not on the same plane, and she poses no threat to him. She has no power over him at all. He is male. She's female. He's old. She's young. He's free. She's a slave. And she makes this very weak Ah. You also were with Jesus of Galilee. Almost even this observation. I don't know what you're talking about. Another servant girl comes and he, he, he gives an oath. Verse 72. I don't know the man. He'll say that again. It's interesting. This is what Jesus said he would say in the day of judgment when evildoers come before him. Do you remember this? Matthew chapter 7 verse three, 23 says... Then in that judgment day, they will tell them plainly, I will tell them plainly, sorry, I never knew you. I don't know you. Away from me, you evildoers. The third accusation, Peter curses and he swears. Either he's cursing out Jesus or he's calling down an oath upon himself from God. May God smite me if I'm lying that I don't know the man. The rooster crows, there's bitter weeping. Jesus had said something about disowning him already. Matthew recorded it for us in Matthew 10, verse 32. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But look at this. Whoever disowns me, whoever denies me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. 
This passage speaks to the temptation that all of us have to set Jesus aside. In our dorm rooms, in the barracks, in the classroom, at the family reunion. It's striking. The third accusation is actually about um, Jesus being, uh, Peter being with Jesus' people. Surely you're one of them. You're one of his people. You're one of those church people. You're one of those Christians. You're one of those evangelicals. Church people sometimes do strange things, weird things, hurtful things, mean things, stupid things. You're one of them. The temptation to just set Jesus aside just for a little bit. Peter, you have, you have done what Jesus said you should not do. You have, you have said what you would not do. No wonder you're weeping bitterly. In all of us, there is a, a fearful heart that is prone to deny. Peter's rescue comes in verse 75 when he remembers Jesus' words. Dale Bruner says, not just the words of prophecy about his failure, but perhaps the words of his restoration too. That's actually where I want to turn. It's not in Matthew, but I want to turn here to step three, and it's not a hard truth. We're going to think about Peter's and our restoration. Peter and our restoration. Uh, take your Bibles with me. Would you turn to the end of John, the last page of the Gospel of John? So from Matthew, go through Mark and then Luke. Don't do it page by ta- page. It'll take forever. But flip through Ma- Mark, flip through Luke, flip through John to the last page. If you are come to the book of Acts, you've gone too far, go back. John chapter 21, and I want to read verses 15 through 19, Peter's restoration here in this passage as we think about these hard truths. John 21, verse 15. After the resurrection, when they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Huh. Remember Peter? These people may, deny, uh, may abandon you, but I never will. Do you love me more than these people do? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter's restored. What about the fact that that Jesus had said, if you deny him, he'll deny you? Well, Peter has repented, and it's repentance that is joined to the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Peter failed spectacularly, but Jesus sought him out. We don't have all the details about it. I wish we did, but look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 again. He says, for what I received, I passed unto you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried... He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and here it is, that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the 12. I would have loved to have heard that conversation between Peter and Jesus. 
he sought him out. He sought out Peter. The good news that we celebrate as followers of Jesus is that he has sought us all out through his death. He came to rescue us from our sin, our overconfident, uh, rebellious, treasonous sin. Jesus came to rescue us from it by dying on the cross, paying the penalty, and rising from the dead. Paying the penalty in our place that we owe. He sought us out. And then Jesus sought you out by sending someone to tell you about him. A parent, a Sunday school teacher, a friend, a radio preacher. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Samuel James says something about Peter's restoration here that I think is interesting. He says something that I have, uh, he said he believed for a number of years, something that I, I, I seems reasonable. Jesus says to Peter, here's how you're going to die, Peter. Someone's going to lead you and take you where you do not want to go, and that's how you're going to die. Samuel James says, it seems like this is a punishment. You know, Peter's been forgiven, he's been restored, but his death's going to be hard and painful. At punishment, consequences for his treason. He says, uh, James says, I, I started to think about this and I don't think this is a punishment anymore. I actually think this is an expression of his restoration, his full restoration. Because do you remember Peter's aspiration in Matthew 26, what he really wanted? He said to Jesus, even if I have to die for your sake, that's what I'll do. And Jesus says to Peter, you are restored and in fact, that's how you're gonna die for my sake. Fully, holy, restored. His, his original aspiration is going to be realized. We're not shocked at the truth about ourselves. We're not shocked at the truth about, our, uh, about one another. We are also never without hope. This account tells us you are worse off than you think you are, but Jesus is better than you can imagine. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are grateful to you for this passage and we're thankful to you for Peter's humility in sharing this story far and wide. We're grateful to you for it because we, disciples, we don't live up to our aspirations of following Jesus either. Some of us in this room have walked this same path of denial like Peter. Some of us have deep memories of, of our own disloyalty to you. How thankful we are to you for this conversation, Lord Jesus, that you had with Peter, restoring him. And we're grateful to you for the testimony of the Apostle Paul that though he's the chief of sinners, uh, your grace is evident in that you rescued him. Lord, grant that we might be realistic and not naive about how deceitful and beyond cure our hearts are, but help us to be hopeful because you know our hearts and give us new hearts through Jesus. May we walk in realistic hopefulness. We look forward to that day when we'll be with Jesus too, when he calls us to himself. 
May that day come soon. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.